Good evening, everyone in Alberta, Canada, and beyond. It is Wednesday, February 8th, and I'm Carrie Lambert, and I welcome you to an online webinar, Evening of Solutions for a New Alberta, brought to you by the Alberta Prosperity Project, also known as APP. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and unite all Albertans, businesses, and organizations to promote the prosperity, individual freedoms, rights, and sovereignty by empowering the Alberta government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. Of course, we couldn't do this without your help. If this is your first time watching, welcome, and I hope you find this information engaging and want to find out more. And if you're a regular APP webinar viewer, thank you for your support. We couldn't do this without you. APP is membership driven with a goal of a million plus members to help steer the political process. And APP memberships are one year for $20, two years for $30, three years for $40. And you can find out more at albertaprosperityproject.com. So tonight's webinar is actually a very serious webinar. So I'll try not to be my usual funny self, I guess, because this one is actually called uh, the disaster of medical assistance in dying, a provincial path forward. And uh, this is a live webinar. So we encourage you to ask questions and make comments throughout this presentation. And in order for us to know when it's a question, please put three question marks before your question and then it'll be flagged and we can quickly view the questions and uh, hopefully get them answered as soon as possible. So I'd like to introduce our, uh, our, our distinguished guest today. His name is Gordon Friesen and uh, we can call up uh, Gordon up here on the screen. Hi Gordon, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Kerry. Good, I thought I would just uh, give a little bit of a, a brief intro that uh, from what I knew about you is that you grew up on the prairies as part of a medical family and uh, he now resides in Montreal. And he was a musician who, after a life-changing accident, uh, became a stay-at-home parent and worked at home. And you are now the president of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, which is at epcc.ca. And you're also part of the euthanasiadiscussion.net. There's both a, a French and an English uh, website out there. And also, as uh, I, I, more about you, I guess, would be you have your own website called hopeandfree.com. Yeah, well, uh, those two uh, websites that you mentioned, the euthanasia discussion, yes. that's mainly text that I, that I wrote. Okay. As you said, I grew up on the prairie, and I went down to what was at that time the capital of Canada, which was Montreal, hands mm -hmm. down, pre-1967, before any of the trouble hit. And uh, I've been there ever since. Uh, unfortunately, as you said, I had a serious accident in, um, 79 mm. and, uh, that made it very difficult for me to do, uh, a lot of active things. Uh, it worked out well though, because I, I, like you mentioned, I had a chance to learn what it is to, uh, be on the other side of the, uh, bottle washing and uh, diaper changing, uh, you know, early childhood for 12 years, four children. Oh, wow. And uh, it was, you know, very, very uh, satisfying. I'm also a um, board member of the Quebec Shooting Federation oh, and okay. and uh, was a disabled pistol champion at one time. We could have a lot of conversations just about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other thing. That's, yeah. that's a whole other thing. Yeah, so uh, I got interested in euthanasia back in 1993 mm -hmm. at the time of the... Uh, trial of uh, Sue Rodriguez who wanted to be able to die because she had a uh, 
progressive uh, disease, ALS, and she was losing her functions. And she said that she didn't want her children to see her diminished. Mm -hmm. She -hmm. thought it would be better to die for your mother to disappear than to see your mother become ill and eventually die. And that just enraged me uh, because it was very personal at that time because I was waiting for my first adopted daughter. Yeah. And uh, I said to myself, boy, this is completely different the way she sees it and the way I see it. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, I got more interested in this. But it, it, it became from something that was just a theory, just an idea. It's like so many other things that change so quickly mm-hmm. in our society that one day it's illegal yeah. and the next day it's mandatory everywhere. How, how, how can you have a transformation like that yeah. in a couple of years? Mm-hmm. You, you had a, um, a vote in parliament in 2009 mm-hmm. where they decided that the social cost of assisted death would be greater than the benefit, that anybody could claim a benefit. And um, just off the top of my head, the uh, vote was 209 or 309 to 58 against. Okay. And now uh, all of the liberals and all of the NDP are whipped to vote in favor. Right. So you say, how could this happen? Well, I won't go into how it did with the, you know, the court battles and so forth and so on, but it basically was, you know, open the, open the door a little bit, open it more, but people have the idea that we're talking about a right to choose. Mm -hmm. And it is no longer about a right to choose. It's about, there would be ways to implement a right to choose. You know, me as president of the uh, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, I shouldn't want to talk about that, about ways to accommodate, because that's not my role. My -hmm. role is to oppose it. But there would be ways to accommodate choice. Yes without totally vandalizing the medical profession, the medical environment, the environment that you encounter as a patient. Um, So basically, I was very excited when I got the uh, invitation to come with uh, Alberta Prosperity because I said to myself, this is a place where a group like yours would be able to draw a clear contrast with the top-down thing that's happening because the definition of uh, euthanasia as medical care, which is way beyond I can choose uh, death. No, you have a doctor prescribing euthanasia to these patients, uh, informing them basically what was criminal suicidal suggestion two year, five years ago. Now it's his duty to inform them of treatment options. In any case, this definition came out in the province of Quebec in 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just basically accepted as a de facto standard for the country. But there's no reason for that because every province has their power over Our health. Health care. That's right. That's Absolutely. exactly right. So Alberta or Prince Edward Island, for that matter, could do as they wish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's big. It's like, uh, you could define, 
you know, whether you want it or not in your hospitals. You can define uh, how your professional is going to respond to it, whether you're going to put public funds into it. All these things can be decided. Just because Quebec decided it was one way doesn't mean that you have to take it that way at all. And if people in Alberta were to take a slightly more conservative attitude towards the idea of like I said, totally upturning our medical system and our medical tradition going back 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. um, this would be an ideal place to do it because the province has the power and the importance of the issue mm -hmm. is that it is about the whole color of healthcare on one hand. And on the other hand, the fact that healthcare is almost an entire third, 32% of all government spending. So it's really a big, big piece of yeah. the government puzzle. And if you can, and it, and it has the possibility of being a, a, a nonpartisan issue and being able to rally people from different sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it could be the kind of issue that uh, would put you on a firm, confident footing in confronting the uh, federal government. Absolutely. And of course, we're, we are talking about medical assisted uh, assistance in dying made. Um, and, and even in preparing for this, I found it uh, very, well, sad and uh, interesting, eye-opening actually. Um, there were certain things, uh, even, even when you do a Google search as an example, if you do a search for made in Canada, I would have actually thought you would have come up with a bunch of mates, like a cleaning service, but you don't anymore because the top hit obviously is people are looking at this. People are, it's a hot topic. It's a, it's a, it's a, a topic where I think it affects everyone at some point. I've got uh, two older parents and I'm hoping that they're going to stay healthy right until they're not. Um, but it's, it's one of these growing up things, growing up in, in life that I think people need to at least have a conversation with this, with, uh, with their loved ones and, uh, and, and at least have, uh, you know, a path forward. And I think everybody needs to, whether you, you know, depending on where you are in, in Canada, by all means, right? Well, later on in the talk, I'm going to come to the numbers yeah. on this a little yeah. bit, yeah. but, uh, when you go. If you, if you have an impression, things are normalized, okay? You have the impression that the nurse talks one way, the doctor talks one way, that it's normal for people to want to finish their lives. It isn't in any way, shape, or form. Um, in Belgium and in Holland, where they have a long experience of euthanasia, mm -hmm. uh, we basically played leapfrog over them. Our numbers are higher than theirs now. But the thing about youth there is that they have been doing this for uh, 20 years and um, the the category which is the most likely to use it is uh, terminal cancer. And of terminal cancer patients, only one in 10 consents. Wow. Yeah. That means that so really the, the, the personal yeah. survival is so strong, okay? Yeah. There is no medical circumstance where it's normal to to want to die. And there is no medical circumstance in which you will not find a majority of people who will refuse to die. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, that's, that's something that should be remembered. And then you talk about growing older, but there's also what happens all of a sudden, you know, like me, for instance, right. when I, when I had that accident, okay, 
And, uh, you know, obviously my life was changed. And, um, you know, there were people there. There were people there on the staff. There was one nurse that said, you know, if it was me, I would kill myself, right? And <laughs> straight up. But at that time, that was frowned on, okay? And yeah. there was a majority chorus of people say, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. And I and 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 you're in a in a position of depression and despair, and the fact is that almost everybody gets over it. There's a nine ninety percent of all, actually ninety nine percent of all people who have these serious accidents, uh, multiple amputation or paralysis or whatever it is, they will make a uh, a positive readaptation. And you should always think of that if you if someone yeah. close to you, yeah. but the. The thing is, there's a, an initial period of a few years where it's very difficult. And if during that time you have doctors who are saying, oh, you know, let it go. Yeah. And then you say, why do they want you to let it go? Well, it's probably because if you don't let it go, it's going to cost them a half a million dollars in support payments over the period of your lifetime. You know, so it, because of the economic thing comes in. I was, I was going to say, it, do you find that in, in the conversations you've had that it, money does come up a lot? Like it always seems to come up, you know, any, anything that we're talking about, even in terms of prosperity, it well, it's down to follow the money or at least talk about the money. It's to the point, Carrie, yeah. where I wonder whether, you know, one of the most useful arguments that people made was coming along and saying, oh, you know what? Uh, handicapped people don't have sufficient supports and they'll be choosing to die because they can't get the care that they need or they can't get the apartment that they need or whatever it is. Or And, you, and if you look on the net, you'll find that. And, and there's a lot of tenderhearted people who say, oh, yeah, that's really important. But those are the people who naturally tend to that side. But somewhere lurking in the background, there's another character. There's another type of character which would say, oh, yeah, we'll get rid of all those guys, you know. What are we paying for all that for? So basically, I almost worry that some of our strongest arguments are actually arguments for the other side. because, And, and then you look at that and you say, well, well, there's another part to that. There's like, okay, if we can't perfectly look after someone, does that mean that you want to to that you have to kill them? You know, like it, it, like like me, for instance, say, you know, turn me out in the cold, okay? I, and and I know I'm going to die and I'm turned out in the cold, right? But that's not the same thing as coming up and putting a knife between my ribs right now, you know? So it's like the idea that government has to solve every problem. No, they don't. And they can't just um, kill all of these people to sweep it under the rug, you know, that, or at least that's my attitude. No, that's true. I know, anyway. uh, I know we have a presentation that you'd like to get into. Uh, do you want to, do you want to start that now? And yeah. I'm sure we can probably address a lot of these other questions. Yeah. Well, a lot of what we're talking about now is in the talk, so okay. we'll go through it and then you, you can, you can ask some questions. Well, I'll, I'll stop about a third of the way in. Sure. Yeah. And we'll That's talk good. about what, but see, first of all, I want to describe something about what euthanasia is because most people don't know they still think it's about the right to choose death the right to choose death forget about it it's over the federal government has legalized it there's yeah. no going back on that but we have this terrible thing going on about normalizing it in our in our hospitals yeah yeah so i'll i'll start right out and uh, sure. and um when i get to the end of the description we'll talk about the description Sounds good. awesome so for a little while it seemed that assisted death had been settled. The dying patients with unbearable suffering would be allowed to end their lives. 
that medical professionals would be legally free to help them. And as long as euthanasia was presented in this way as a free choice, mm -hmm. affecting no one else, Canadians seemed willing to accept, if not to approve. Recently, however, so-called medical assistance in dying has returned to public attention with stories of horrible unintended consequences. Canadian soldiers offered MAID for PTSD, patients bullied to accept MAID, people seeking MAID to avoid disabled homelessness. In short, the reality of euthanasia has turned out to be very different from what we were led to expect. But worse still, behind these terrible anecdotes lies a more fundamental story, which is nothing less than the transition of our entire healthcare system to a new utilitarian model where death is prescribed as care, where patient liquidation becomes the cure. Tonight, I would like to examine how this has happened, what it means, and what we can do about it. Now, I have to get into my share screen situation here. So, Gordon so has some slides he wants to show. Share screen, window, click on the window, share. Okay. All right. Shauna does her magic. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. That which sets Canada apart from the rest of the world is that our country and our country alone has explicitly defined euthanasia as medical care and indeed as essential medical care. That is the crucial point. Unlike other countries, we're no longer merely talking about the right of people to choose death. That most thorny issue remains, of course, but completely apart from choice, and in fact, largely foreign to it, is this much more devastating concept of euthanasia presented as objectively indicated treatment. For when euthanasia is defined in that way, it becomes possible for doctors to treat death like any other tool in their medical kit. And that, in turn, enables utilitarians to promote euthanasia systematically in what amounts to a vast collective cost reduction scheme a sort of veterinary herd management practiced at the expense of individual patients and indeed at the expense of patient-centered medicine itself. Therefore, much as I would like to confess to the abuse of overheated language, the phrase utilitarian death medicine would seem to be no more than a plain, literal statement of fact. A first indication of the radical difference between assisted suicide justified by choice and euthanasia justified as medical care appears in the relative size of their respective footprints. Oregon, for instance, decriminalized assisted suicide in 1994. 27 years later, 2021, we noticed 238 reported deaths. By way of comparison, during the same year in the Canadian province of Quebec, only seven years after legalization, 3,000 663 people died. Admittedly, the Oregon population is roughly half that of Quebec. Mm. However, Canadian numbers continue to rise rapidly. It would appear, therefore, that Quebec rates are soon to be 10 times those of Oregon, one full order of magnitude greater. A second dramatic comparison could be made with Canada and the state of California. Both have populations of about 40 million, both legalized assisted death in 2016. But whereas California notes 500 deaths, a little less in 2021, Canada shows no less than 10,000. 
That is 20 times the California rate. Clearly then, in comparison with the choice-based assisted suicide of Oregon and California, medically justified euthanasia represents not a difference in degree, but a difference in kind. A difference, I believe, which will eventually appear as a stain upon the history of our nation. So how may we explain this astounding numerical discrepancy? Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, when assisted death is justified only by choice, its objective moral status is simply undefined. Neither individuals nor society itself are obliged to approve or to facilitate such deaths. They are permitted merely. When euthanasia is defined as an objectively essential medical treatment, however, as blood transfusion is so defined, we are actually obliged to accept euthanasia as categorically good in all places and at all times. For that is the meaning of medical care defined in this way. Euthanasia becomes a positive medical good. Moreover, it is no longer the suicidal patient who bears chief responsibility for his own death, for it is always the doctor who is responsible for medical treatment prescribed. While the patient's choice is clinically replaced with the much more ambiguous term, consent. From this first definition of euthanasia as medical care and from the moral responsibility derived, all sorts of professional and social obligations are logically created, which do not exist with regards to a morally undefined subjective choice. For just as doctors and institutions must provide blood transfusion, so also must they now provide euthanasia. And to the extent that other treatments are guaranteed by the state, so much it, so must it be with euthanasia also. Moreover, while rebellious doctors come under pressure to provide euthanasia, those physicians who willingly embrace the practice are free to professionally propagate this new treatment as they please. For doctors may suggest and prescribe appropriate care as they see fit. They do not wait for a patient's request. They are ethically required to proactively prescribe optimal treatment to which the patient will normally consent, deferring to expert opinion. Wow. In fact, consent itself is no longer a firm boundary in this area, for it would clearly be unethical to deprive incapable persons of a positive benefit available to others. Hence, the door is immediately opened, as in Canada, to a volume of euthanasia whose scale depends only upon eligibility requirements and the discretion of those doctors inclined to its use. Canadian policy. As a matter of principle, euthanasia must now be practiced in all Canadian medical facilities with extremely limited exceptions. This includes all hospitals, community clinics, long-term care facilities, home care programs, hospices, as concerns doctors and nurses, there exists an assumed duty to perform euthanasia. Limited conscience exemptions apply, but no professional objections are possible. All professional, that is medical and scientific opposition to the practice of euthanasia in Canada, is now officially disallowed. Practically speaking, euthanasia compliance has become a condition of employment, advancement, and increasingly, even of training and certification. Effective referrals are mandatory and a most insidious duty to inform, whereby all eligible patients are informed of their right to euthanasia. That is, where previously criminal suicidal suggestion has now become part of the doctor's normal duty to discuss treatment options. As for instance, 
right off the bat at admission to long-term care, where patients are thus universally subject to direct institutional steering towards doctor-proposed euthanasia even before other treatment has been envisaged. It would be impossible, I submit, to design a system better adapted to maximize the practice of euthanasia. So who then will ultimately be eligible for, or rather subject to this new practice of medical homicide? Considering the serious consequences of defining euthanasia as medical care, we would expect an equally serious definition of exactly what clinical indications demand its use. However, there is no such rigorous medical foundation for, for euthanasia. That is the naked emperor at the heart of MAID. It remains an essentially political exercise driven by ideal notions of personal choice and the limits of choice are not definite, but subject to litigation and compromise. In MAID, however, medicine and choice are joined at the hip. As eligibility proceeds upon the choice axis, as in Canada, from intolerable suffering at the very end of life to viable patients of all kinds, it is not the limits of choice alone which are altered. For if all legal euthanasia is deemed to be medically justified, which it is by definition, then the limits of what is considered a clinically indicated death must be adjusted accordingly. Hence, the non-suicidal majority within this ever-increasing pool of eligible patients becomes automatically subject to all of the institutional assumptions and pressures which are inseparable from a corresponding inclusion along the medical axis, whether that inclusion be desired or no. Incredibly, therefore, it is the most marginal suicidal wishes legally admissible, which ultimately determine standard clinical indications for the practice of medical homicide. And this objectively, not for request alone, but for prescription as well. Ironically, even at this late date, it is glibly affirmed that all depends upon patient choice. But of what choice are we speaking when the non-compliant dependent patient must now live in an objectively hostile institutional environment where his or her death is openly promoted as the most desirable clinical outcome? Moreover, as earlier intimated, all of the above noted enlargements, obligations, and permissions are also logically transported to the incapable zone through the most rigorous application of medical ethics. Nor is this a speculative warning of some hypothetical slippery slope. Canada is already skating around the consent requirement, even for viable patients in the very young, in those with mental illness, in those having made advance requests. In fact, all that now remains to enable a full application of euthanasia to the incapable and perhaps even for the treatment of incapacity itself, is to authorize the standard protocols of shared and substituted consent, which are already applied in all other life-critical decision-making. In other words, nothing but a small and logically inevitable formality. Apparently then, the ultimate destination of a regime supposedly founded upon unconditional respect of patient autonomy 
may well be the evacuation of an entire class of dependent persons possessing no autonomous capacity at all. Admittedly, these conclusions may seem absurd, but they are also perfectly real. And that, dear friends, is what is meant by utilitarian death medicine piggybacking on the power of choice. Now, there's a cause for this, of course. Without doubt, what has been described thus far is a complete transformation of medicine as we understand it, and indeed of the way which we care for one another more generally. Neither should we be in any doubt about the force with which this transition will proceed, for this is not a question of philosophy alone. The main impetus behind medically justified euthanasia is provided by enormous economic forces. Until very recently, individuals were entirely responsible for their own medical expenses, while collective action was limited to public health only. With modern ideals of group responsibility, however, these categories have become increasingly blurred. First with private insurance, but ultimately with public medical systems, of which the monopoly in Canada provides a supreme example. As a result, the evolution of modern healthcare financing has been characterized by a shift of consumer power from the individuals to the collective sphere. While the former patient-client payer has been increasingly demoted to a lesser status of mere beneficiary. For to put it simply, he who pays the piper has the right to call the tune. Unfortunately, this change has also been characterized by the emergence of inherent conflicts between the interests of individual patients and those of the system in its entirety. Traditionally, a typical patient desirous of surviving as long as possible would hire a doctor to that end. Mm -hmm. The doctor, financially dependent upon the patient, would have no reason to refuse resource-intensive treatment and certainly no advantage in literally killing the goose, providing him with golden eggs. If it is a major insurance company, however, managed care network or government agency that is actually paying the doctor or hospital, the situation is different. In that case, faithfully responding to the interests of the collective buyer, supposedly to do the most good with limited resources, it is obvious that doctors will attempt to strategically withhold care from expensive cases. And given an option to prescribe euthanasia, there can be no doubt that maximum recourse will result. Nor do these motives need to be explicitly stated or even understood in order to work their formidable effect. For economic forces have an impersonal power, like that of water running downhill. To the extent that doctors, juggling budgets in the public system, come to believe that euthanasia can be represented as an objectively desirable and fully ethical medical treatment, they will increasingly employ it, with or without admission to themselves or to others of the pervasive economic forces influencing their acts. In past days, these dangers were commonly recognized, and the equivalent of moral seawalls were maintained to restrain them. The invasive effect of utilitarian motives was at least partially offset by powerful traditional assumptions, of which the most important, without doubt, was the assumption 
that doctors would never be allowed to actually kill their patients. Mm -hmm. But that, of course, is exactly the prohibition which has now been removed. In summary, then, the medical justification of euthanasia provides a conceptual and ethical framework for potentially eliminating huge numbers of economically embarrassing persons. Whereas the basic economics of modern collective medical delivery systems provides the most powerful of motivations to achieve precisely that effect. In a word, this is the proverbial perfect storm. Wow. So that is the first part for sure. Yeah, that is a description of what we're doing. You know, it, it's funny seeing the comments because I was actually expecting there to be a lot of comments, but I think everyone is just like me and like, holy crap, is this it's huge? This it's real? huge, right? And there, and now they'll probably start to start banging away on the keyboard. But you know, things that I was was uh, I had kind of looked into was the fact that like in in doctors um, in Quebec, um, really, I guess uh, doctors are the ones that actually prescribe, for lack of a better word, uh, yeah, that, versus, well, versus, yeah, okay. The, yeah. highest, the highest numbers, the highest numbers right now are in Quebec yes, and in British Columbia. Wow. And the highest numbers in the whole country are in Victoria, British Columbia. Really? And, okay. Well, well, this is how personal it is. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to get myself into court with slander, but there is one lady in Victoria, BC, yeah, who is responsible for an enormous share of what's going on. She's actually done 400 cases. Wow. Okay. So imagine that. Now, you said the doctors didn't quit. Well, actually what it is, is there is a certain doctor mentality yeah. that they say, yeah, this is a good thing. Now, I, I, I'm not going to cast aspersion on, on their, their, their motivation to say that. Yeah. But you can imagine when you go to see a doctor, it now has become very important what kind of a doctor you're going to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And you, it's like we were talking about off screen. You get these enormous social changes. Like one day, that's absolutely off the table. You know, a doctor absolutely cannot harm a patient. You know, this goes yeah. back 2,000 years. Yeah. Now suddenly, just last week, there was a, an article in Quebec saying that the College of Physicians and Surgeons was was warning doctors that they should stop dragging their feet on this. Wow. You know, imagine. They've yeah. got the highest numbers in the world. They've just climbed over Belgium, Belgium and Holland, who've been in the business for 20 years, and this guy is telling them not to drag their feet. So imagine where we're going. Wow. Yeah, and of course... Big question. So why is it so high in Canada? Well, because we're now making it legal and anyone can go ahead and do it for various reasons. Well, it's, it's not just can go ahead. They have. They are. Yeah, but it's not just. Yeah, but it's they have to go ahead. See, if yeah. the government. See here, the government is doing it. OK, the government is providing health care. They decided it, it, the, the definition that they came up with in Quebec is that it's guaranteed to all eligible people. All right, guaranteed. guaranteed. So it, it's it's a high highest priority healthcare that you can imagine. That's it. So every 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 institution has to do it. 
Every doctor has to participate. They don't have to do it themselves, but if they don't do it, they have to line you up with someone who will. And is that from like, again, I'm trying to piece this together. This is a government uh, imposed legislation or is okay. this from the College of Physicians? No, the way the law, it is law, the, the original law in Quebec was in, uh, in, in 2014. Okay. Wow. At that time, uh, Canada was not interested in in doing in legalizing this, okay? Yeah. But Quebec did an end run on them using the provincial health power. Yeah. They said, okay, it's criminal to kill somebody, but we're not killing anybody here. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a medical treatment. We're going to define it like that. And therefore, it can't be illegal because of medical treatment. We call it medical treatment. It's just like a sleight of hand, you know, the, wow. the, the basic Orwellian thing. But anyway, what they did was they wrote a law. It was called the Law Respecting End-of-Life Care. Mm -hmm. And then they, they, they said end-of-life care is care that people need at the end of life. Okay, obviously. And then it said it would comprise both palliative care and medical aid in dying. Mm -hmm. So that's as close to a definition as you get is that yeah. medical aid and dying is end-of-life care and end-of-life care is, is, is uh, guaranteed to all citizens. Okay, yeah. But now with the recent law C7 at the federal level where they extended it to people who are not at the end of death, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. now basically it's end-of-life care except that it's not at the end of life anymore. Mm -hmm. So the guarantee now is guaranteed to all people for whom it is appropriate, that means all people for whom it is eligible. I'm perfectly eligible, you know. There's millions and millions of people have become eligible for this thing. And so wow. you have a guy who's down on his luck, he's not talking yeah. to his wife or whatever it is, you know. Absolutely. And, and yeah. you have people that, you know, for all the normal reasons that might be suicidal, and instead of getting uh, help with their suicidal urges, they're just fast-tracked through the system. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be comments about, you know, what the Hippocratic oath says that first do no harm and all life is sacred and blah, blah, blah. Is that just thrown out the window because of government? Well, said? okay. This, I mean, I don't want to get too political about this, yeah, but yeah. in the, in the last generation, they just tore Hippocrates apart. Do you know yeah. why? You think why? It's about another very important social debate that we had, which was abortion, you yes. see, because Hippocratic doctors were against abortion. Now, whatever you might think about choice in abortion, again, whatever you might, you might think about choice, what happened here was that they just basically ridiculized the whole idea of, as you said, do no harm. Do no harm is a very powerful principle, you know? Like, uh, even if you're, I don't care how pro-choice you are, if you are out in a field, broken in two pieces, mm -hmm. and you get a paramedic who comes up who believes that life is sacred, you're gonna be happy to see that guy, right? Ooh. Okay, he might not be pro-choice, but you're going to be happy to see him because he believes that your life matters, right? Mm -hmm. So now we no longer have that. And uh, the Hippocratic Oath has been out of medicine for, for many years. And now they're coming around to this idea that, no, honestly, the idea is that killing the patient, it, it, they added into the law 
they changed the definition of, of uh, what constitutes medical care, which was basically preventing and restoring. Yeah. They added symptom relief. So yeah. basically the idea is they kill you for symptom relief. No, there's no more suffering because there's no more sufferer. Yeah. And they believe that that's, you know, well, that's the theory anyway. So I don't know, maybe you'd like me to go on for a little while with, with, with the, well, we, we could certainly continue on with that. Cause I, I mean, I, I have, Oh, we'll is, talk is, about it. It, is it always doctors that are actually uh, doing, do you this is an, this is an interesting thing. Is you that know, cause, a clinic? Cause yeah. You yeah, know, growing yeah. up in growing up in Manitoba, we had uh, you know you brought up abortion and uh, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. That was such a that was a, a big thing back in the eighties and I think the nineties, right? And and obviously that had a lot to change with the laws, like what you're saying. But now it sounds like um, you know doctors can can basically say, yep, you know what you're you're an ideal candidate. I'm going to give you a package to take home. Is that, is that? No, 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 no. There, okay, there's, okay. People still think we're dealing with assisted suicide. Assisted suicide is a doctor gives you medication, you take the medication, you die, okay? okay. Yeah. Well, this is one of the main things that the Quebec interpretation changed. We don't have any assisted suicide in Canada. Yeah. There's only been like about six or seven cases yeah. of assisted suicide. The it's best. all euthanasia. And euthanasia is mainline the drugs. The doctor mainlines the drugs on yeah. you. And you mentioned doctors. Is it all doctors? They are having, I said, there's one lady who did 400 cases. Well, they have trouble finding doctors who will do it because a wow. normal human being doesn't want to do this. Exactly. Right? exactly. Okay? okay. So they have trouble doing it. So now they've opened, they're opening the uh, eligibility to perform euthanasia to uh, practical nurses, you know, like, uh, um, not practical, you know, it's one step down from a doctor, but it's a nurse who's able to do things an like RN. a midwife. A yeah, no, nurse. higher than an RN, but basically it's a, it's a, it's, it's a nurse okay. and they, they're opening it up because they have to get people to do it. And yet at the same time, nobody is allowed not to do it. And they're concentrating, these doctors are concentrating themselves in specialties where they have high morbidity. So basically you have a fight, you know, you have the, the, the traditional palliative care physician mm -hmm. who is all about bringing you down the line as far as possible, you know, palliating all of your symptoms, no matter how sick you are, that you could, you know, benefit from your last days, hours yeah. of life. That's what palliative care is all about. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's not about putting you down. Well, these euthanasia doctors, they present themselves as palliative specialists. Yeah. And basically their idea is they're going to palliate you right up until the time that they can give, convince you to, to, to throw in the towel, right? So it's completely different. It's com com completely, completely different. Yeah. Okay, so maybe I should go and talk about... Let's keep going because, again, if, without knowing what's in the presentation, and, and I'm sure there's lots of other questions that I've been writing down too, if you don't cover them, we will cover them at the end. And by yeah. all means, they, our viewers, please ask your questions. And and honestly, if they get answered, then then that's fine. Then we don't have to ask them at the end of the presentation. It's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Now I have to try to remember what I'm doing here again. Share screen. Share screen. 
window. Okay, share. Is this working again, Carrie? That looks good. Excellent. Yep. Okay, so what is to be done? The antidote. Medical euthanasia brings us face to face with the most fundamental of human questions. The great American novelist Jack London is quoted as saying, I believe that with my death, I am just as much obliterated as the last mosquito you and I squashed. Lurking within these words is the suggestion that a human life is of no greater importance than that of an insect. And from a purely physical perspective, this may perhaps be true. But as conscious social creatures, our mutual respect and support for one another depend upon our agreeing together that it is not. To teach that human life should be ended according to medical criteria is a completely different proposition from saying that people might of their own free will be allowed to seek assistance in suicide. Whatever we might decide concerning choice, to embrace objectively indicated medical euthanasia is to reduce human beings to the status of mere objects to be judged and disposed of on their usefulness alone. In my view, that is unacceptable. And I passionately believe that we have an urgent duty to push back hard against medical euthanasia. If we wish to reverse the medical definition of euthanasia, and to restore a true life-affirming patient-centered medical practice, our only road lies through the gauntlet of democratic action. For healthcare in Canada is essentially a state monopoly, and all medical practices regulated by government policy. The system itself contains no independent capacity for self-adjustment. Like a robot, it must be told what to do. Happily, however, since health is a provincial responsibility, it will not be necessary to gain the agreement of all 40 million Canadians. In order to change the radical medical definition of euthanasia, which was created by legislators in the province of Quebec, 4 million Albertans will suffice, 1 million Saskatchewanians, or even 150,000 Prince Edward Islanders. Optimistically envisaged, our path lies through a dynamic landscape of competing provincial models where the will and the experience of each can freely evolve to the instructive benefit of all. Obstructing our path, of course, lies the reassuring nonsense that a purely subjective personal choice of suicide might be justified by objective medical science that suicide and homicide might thus both disappear beneath the wings of a magical medical construct demurely referred to as made. Ideas, however, have consequences. And as we have seen, defining objective medicine to conform with arbitrary choice has terrible consequences. In order, therefore, to provide a clear conceptual basis for legislation, our first task is to deconstruct the illogical conceptual hybrid that is medical assistance in dying. We must resolutely separate medicine from choice. As typically presented, the dual justification of made involves a circular succession of two claims, neither of which is convincing on its own, but where the alleged truth of each is nonetheless used to excuse the weakness of the other.
First, because there is no agreement on a general voluntary right to die, it has been argued that exceptions be made for medical reasons. But because there is no agreement on the medical legitimacy of euthanasia, it is argued that exceptions be made for choice, and so forth, and so on. Mm -hmm. To stop the operation of this logical merry-go-round, we must set choice aside for a moment. For whatever political favor there might be for some theoretical right to die, we must absolutely not allow medical euthanasia to be established on the coattails of death by choice. We must insist on confronting the claim of medical legitimacy as an independent proposition. Happily also, it is not difficult to show that euthanasia has no true medical justification. For in the medical world, the meaningful declaration of a positive good or best clinical practice requires a widespread, nearly unanimous agreement as mm -hmm. attached to our earlier blood transfusion example. That in response to clearly defined clinical indications, a given treatment should be employed. But no such agreement exists concerning euthanasia. In a word, people disagree on euthanasia in a way that they do not disagree regarding accepted standard procedures. Contrary to radical Canadian doctrine, therefore, and regardless of any pretended political consensus, euthanasia remains a highly controversial act mm -hmm. in the medical realm. Moreover, it is not actually necessary for us to prove that euthanasia is wrong. In medical terms, the mere existence of significant disagreement is sufficient to discard claims at least of essential status. However, in this circumstance, we actually benefit from a preponderance of medical opinion, for in no case has this lethal mandate ever been accorded in response to organic internal majority demand amongst medical professionals. Quite the contrary. Where decriminalization has occurred, it has always been imposed from without by judicial fiat and legislative decree. In fact, it was largely the opposition of doctors which had so long kept medical homicide at bay. Mm -hmm. Recent claims of majority doctor support in Canada, I submit, are most reasonably interpreted as the subtle alignments of personal principle which are required by individuals to continue working in this highly privileged profession. On closer examination, most doctors admit themselves unwilling to personally practice euthanasia, while roughly one-third still oppose the practice entirely. And yet time is short. With the normalization of euthanasia in practice and in training, these attitudes will surely, surely change. We can no longer expect medical authority to preempt political action. Admittedly, and regardless of personal feelings, federal law now decrees that euthanasia may legally be practiced across Canada. Quite obviously, however, mere legality does not confer essential status. Many disputed procedures are now legally performed, but that does not make them medically necessary. Provinces, for example, are not required to provide access to cosmetic liposuction or but enhancement. That's right. Yeah. It is the present view that euthanasia should be treated in the same manner. That if legal, the eventual scope of euthanasia practice should be determined only by the number of people who seek it out and by the number of those willing to provide it. So 
following now is a list of legislative principles which I believe faithfully reflects this view and which I would recommend to all provincial lawmakers. I believe our guiding principle should simply be stated thus. Euthanasia and assisted suicide are not medical actions to which patients might claim entitlement. The practical meaning of this phrase is that euthanasia is merely permitted within the scope of existing criminal exceptions, that individuals may seek this service, that willing individuals may provide it, but that no one, either individually or collectively, is deemed to condone the practice nor to guarantee its accomplishment. Secondly, because euthanasia is denied status as essential care, medical professionals should have neither the special duties nor the special permissions which such a status would imply. They should have no duty, for instance, to inform, to evaluate, to perform, or to refer, nor should they have any permission to propose euthanasia, nor to indulge, and this is especially important, in any proactive suicidal suggestion under the guise of providing information. And third, because euthanasia is not essential medicine, it is not appropriate for public resources to be spent in its practice. And because normal, majority, non-suicidal patient security requires a euthanasia-free clinical environment, both euthanasia itself and professionals partial to its use must be excluded from institutions within the public domain. Finally, clarity must be sought in public discourse. All pretense of medical normality must be rejected, beginning with the linguistic assumptions at their base. Every use of the words medicine, medical, medication, care, treatment, etc. should be challenged and qualified. The term made itself should be constantly qualified as a merely tangential service incidentally provided perhaps by some medical professionals. So that then is our legislative agenda, which can be presented province by province. But can we find the democratic force required to carry it? Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. will be the last section when we get back to to presenting, I'll talk about the democratic forces that we have. Yeah, and how to how to how to how to do this or stop it or whatever we need to do. Um, so the so all all right now, if if it's if it's listed as euthanasia, it's actually paid for by taxpayers. Absolutely. Right? So, and like you said, it's, it's not, it's totally different than getting your butt enhanced. It's, um, but in, in doing that, I guess the argument again would be, well, you're saving money eventually, blah, blah, blah. I just, I just, I can't even wrap my head around it. It just seems to be morally wrong for me. And again, you know, I, I there'll be comments in there that say, um, you know, I've got an uncle or, or a friend that is in this situation. They have to do this through the hospice. And you know what? Every example is it makes perfect sense. But like you said, right off the hop, it's no matter. Uh, it's not a matter of choice anymore. These are options from the doctor to say, you know what? You can go through this. You know, you're going to have a terrible life for the next year or two or right. or, or that's it for now. Yeah, no, it's the normalization because people yeah. normalize things, all right? Yes. And so it's what is the expectation, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And particularly in, you know, they, they say, you know, you know, the extraordinary things that have happened, you know, like they've basically eliminated Down syndrome. Yeah. In one or two Nordic countries in particular, in Iceland, they don't have any Down syndrome anymore. It's gone. So you say, you look at that and you say, okay, but how far can you go along with this idea of perfecting human beings that if a damaged human being is out, you know, it's, it's how far can you go with that idea? And how, how, what kind of sanity can we have? <clears throat> like uh, when I was in the adoption process, I have four adopted children. And when I was in the adopted adoption process, people would worry about, you know, uh, a child might be sick. Yeah. But you have to think about this. You have to think about what it means, like for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Any child can fall sick. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to say, all right, I won't accept this child because this child is sick. Then what is your reaction going to be when the child that you do have becomes sick? Mm -hmm. Is it a sick child is, you know, and this is what we're talking is very, very important subject right now is infanticide. We're not now. We're not talking about someone saying, "Oh, writing down the request." And no, we're talking about killing young children from zero to twelve years of age with yeah. parental consent. Yeah, this is going to be on the on the front burner in a couple of years from now. They're working on it in the background now. Well, how far are you going to go with that? Mm -hmm. And as you and I are friends, you get married till death do us part for better or for worse. No, it's going to be as soon as you go down the checklist to this point, you get thrown under the bus, you know, yeah. and everybody looks at you and say, you know, take your medicine, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. Now in, in the third part, of course, I'm just, I may be jumping ahead here, but it, it seems logical to, to jump into this. So these, this initial change, to the MAID Act was done in March 17th of 2021. And now there's another change coming up in 2023, like literally just days away, March 7th yeah. or whatever. And it's uh, a change to the exclusion of any men mental illness. So um, anything psychiatric. Yeah. Uh, you, you, also... got, you, you got three things that are, that are, that are... Yeah. Three places where the consent boundary is being challenged. Okay? Yeah. And one I said is uh, with young children. Now, you, And then you have the mental illness. Okay. Well, what's, yeah. what's interesting about the mental illness is that there's no physical symptoms. Yeah. Okay. So basically now we're saying that right. euthanasia is for suffering of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anybody who's complaining. Basically, if you're complaining about your lot in life, you're, you're good to go. So yeah. then that's, that's that principle. Then you have advanced requests. Yeah. And what a, advanced requests, the person wants to die, but he wants to die now. But you can't tell that later when he's a befuddled old guy yeah. uh, knocking over his, uh, his uh, coffee whether he still wants to die. You can't tell because he's not capable of consent. Yeah. So if you euthanize those people, you're euthanizing people that can't consent. Mm -hmm. So now you got these two things. You got, he can't consent. It's okay to kill him. He doesn't have to have anything physically wrong with him. It's okay to kill him. He just has to be in some kind of distress. Yeah. 
And if he's badly treated, of course, he's going to be in some kind of distress. So right away, you know, these things get meshed. And then the final one is the one with the children, substituted consent. Yeah. Think of the boatload of people who are difficult for one reason or another. Doesn't yeah. matter what reason. They, they're incapable of decision by themselves. And if they don't have any family at all, it's the, it's the institution could just decide to get rid of them. And if they have a family, maybe they have a family that's fed up with looking after the guy and yeah. they're ready to sign off on. Mm -hmm. So you're left with, okay, the group that wants to look mm -hmm. after their, their grandfather or whatever, they'll say, okay, uh, you don't want to take the, the uh, prescribed treatment. Okay. That's yeah. fine. But look after them yourselves. So yeah. there's basically no, no safety net anymore. It, it, you're right. people, people don't imagine what is coming down the pike. No, this this does the whole age gamut, right? Like because like for me, even before having this discussion, I really just thought, okay, if you're older, you know, eventually I'm going to get there too. But you know, maybe your body's failing, mental illness, dementia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now it's totally on the other side. It's it could be zero to twelve, and likewise, I think. As soon as someone turns 13, they can even go and talk to them. Well, then they're going on with, that's what they call mature minors, right? Yeah. Because, and this is an interesting point. Like, I'm not really, I'm not an expert on this. I do know some experts on this question. But the difference between capacity and competence, okay? And yeah. capacity in a way they were saying, okay, the person is capable of making decisions. Well, because they want people to be capable, you know? Yeah. Like, when you're dealing with someone who, who has a, um, intellectual deficiency, you'd like them to be capable. So you can help them to be capable. You can yeah. be with them. You can coach them. You can ask them what they like. And did it. Well, if they're talking about being killed, that's not the same thing as deciding what flavor of ice cream they're going to have. It's not the same thing at all. So being capable and competent, there's a difference. Yeah. But, but yes, the thing is like, it is, uh, it does. There is no age for it. No. And there's a whole, the idea was that there's a whole, how is it that for thousands of years, we had people that for one reason or another were outside of uh, the normal spectrum. They couldn't work anymore. They were missing a leg. No. They, 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 they were intellectually deficient for one reason or another. They were schizophrenic, whatever it was. Yeah. But the community kind of, accepted that we had to put up with them you know even if it even if we had to make certain sacrifices we had family members we had whatever it was yeah. but now the idea is no we don't have to do that anymore we could just cut the cord you know it it, it is it is an, a total different way of looking at human life yeah. and so and 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 the, hopefully the thing is People are sold on the choice idea. They're saying, yeah, if I, why shouldn't I have a choice? Yeah. And for years, the thing is, we were fighting the choice. We were, we were saying, okay, but individual choice ends up with larger social problems, okay? Yeah. But we've lost that battle. The choice thing is over. But what we have to do, if we want to achieve a democratic solution to this, is we have to be able to explain to people how it is that this medical standardization of euthanasia, basically just getting rid of anybody who, who causes any kind of a social problem, yeah. is different 
from people being allowed to choose. Yes. It's not the same thing. Yeah. And if we come down on medical euthanasia, that is not going to take away your ability to choose or to find a way to kill yourself. Mm. I mean, since um, suicide itself was legalized in 1972. And uh, Sue Rodriguez, the lady that I mentioned in her trial, she was, her, 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 her request was refused. And a short time later, she had assisted suicide mm -hmm. with the help of a doctor in the presence of a sitting member of parliament. It was a complete setup to, to, to uh, entice another court case on the yeah. basis of that and the government refused it because they didn't they didn't follow up with any charges and since that time 1993 there has been no doctor who has been as far as i know has been even arrested there's certainly not been anyone who has suffered any kind of a penalty and if you think that there has been no assisted suicide in the last 30 years i mean that would be an absurd yeah. An absurd conclusion. Of course there's been. And that's one of their arguments. One of their arguments is, well, we already do it. Why shouldn't it be legal? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Anyway, I, I would like to talk about now yeah. and how we're going to do that, how we're going to organize this. And what our, not, because we have a lot of natural force here, mm -hmm. if we can just make that distinction. So we'll uh, go back to share screen. Just a moment. Little, okay, share screen, share screen, window, click, share. Okay. So you can see me, Carrie? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So naturally, our adversaries will not easily see the point of medical legitimacy. They will claim that paternalist doctors have no right to deny patients' wishes. They will return to choice. However, we need not be afraid of engaging them on that terrain either. We must simply insist on a proper consideration of majority choice. And we must do this by the numbers, by adopting the morally neutral language of commercial exchange. For the current priority of euthanasia in Canada, cannot possibly be justified through the mathematical reasoning of applied economics. Such a justification would require an enormous patient demand for euthanasia. And as we shall see, no such Fire. demand. An enormous. Go ahead. Whoops. No, that was me. That was me. Okay. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> an enormous demand for euthanasia. And as we shall see, no such demand exists. Admittedly, some people really do wish to die. However, it is extremely important to provide a proportional portrait of this phenomenon. For contrary to common perception, and regardless of any medical circumstance, very few people will ever consent to die. Mm -hmm. Among victims of catastrophic injury, for instance, such as parent quadriplegics, only 1% will actually commit suicide above normal expectation. 
That's much lower, by the way, than I had thought when I started researching it. That was amazing. And so also for degenerative disease like ALS or AIDS before the arrival of effective therapy in the mid-90s. Even among terminal cancer patients, experience shows that only one in 10 will consent to die in this manner. Categorically then, from the dispassionate perspective of commercial market share, potential customers for euthanasia are never more than 1% to 10%. And quite obviously, one does not rationally design any industry to prioritize the satisfaction of a 1% to 10% market share. As for what more typical non-suicidal patients want, that question was largely settled 2,400 years ago by Hippocrates of Kos. At a time when doctors mercilessly exploited the hopes of their patients and frequently catered to darker motives still, Hippocrates explored the boundaries of a true healing profession, developing a doctrine later expressed as primum non nocera, meaning first do no harm. Mm -hmm. As we are well aware, the ethical standard of Hippocrates has been severely attacked in recent years, first on the grounds of circumstantial relativity, but ultimately on that of pure personal privilege. What is less generally understood, however, is that questioning the moral authority of primum non nocera does nothing to diminish its phenomenal commercial importance. For patients as consumers following their own natural interests immediately embrace these Hippocratic doctors, not only in Christian Europe, but also in the more permissive moral antiquity of Greece and Rome. In other words, it is a historically proven fact that when free to do so, patients as consumers will overwhelmingly choose to trust doctors who have promised not to kill. As regards a reasonable division of these competing market segments, there exists a most pernicious assumption that one clinical model may serve for both, that assisted death can simply be added to standard medical practice without depriving typical patients of the service that they seek. However, the entire notion of euthanasia inclusion flies in the face of elementary economic experience, where detailed market specialization has always provided the royal road to satisfaction. Euthanasia and traditional medicine cannot properly share the same clinical space. For the non-suicidal majority of patients today, just as in ages past, simply cannot place their trust in doctors and nurses who are known to kill. And in the end, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters, we are all patients. Plainly stated then, in simple economic terms, standard medical practice should be structured by default to cater exclusively to majority life-affirming care. It thus appears that Canadian euthanasia policy creates a gross economic infringement on majority patient interest, and a most serious infringement also based upon the staggering sums of money involved. One or two statistics will suffice to demonstrate this point. Over 32%, that is nearly one third of combined government spending, local, provincial, federal, is directed to healthcare or 13% of gross domestic product. 
By comparison, national defense represents only 1% of GDP. As a quantitatively verifiable proposition, therefore, consumer demand for self-preservation is without rival. And in consequence, it is my belief that this overwhelming economic force must eventually produce a corresponding democratic majority in defense of life-affirming care. One will, of course, ask how the economic case for democratic majority can be squared with commonly re reported voter approval of death by choice. I would simply suggest that such numbers are highly deceptive because we cannot interchangeably employ the notions of death by choice and death as care, that the support noted only relates to personal freedom under extreme conditions, while the actual transformation of our entire medical industry to maximize euthanasia as care has never been presented for public debate, much less for informed democratic decision. I believe it is our task to provoke that discussion. In the past, euthanasia was framed as a question of choice only, and criticism has largely been focused on accidental harms to specific groups, such as the conscience rights of objecting doctors or special risks to the disabled. It has thus been comfortably assumed that no one else would be affected. However, death as care has no such limits. Despite socialization, public health care remains a form of insurance. Active people are contributing now for care that they expect to receive in the future. But to substitute death for care is to steal untold yearly contributions paid in premiums and in taxes. The entire act of population is thus directly affected as both immediate purchaser and eventual recipient of medical euthanasia. And this means what to me? Incredibly, <clears throat> it would appear that no one is even addressing this catastrophe. It would seem that the entire euthanasia program is now flying on operational autopilot. Euthanasia has been defined as fully ethical medical treatment. And in the absence of any counter instructions, the system itself is retooling to apply that definition literally. Automatically following its own economic imperatives, like a rogue artificial intelligence killing the patients it was created to protect. I would suggest that these conclusions are so offensive as to cut through any ambiguity surrounding the euthanasia debate. For we are no longer talking about a minority right to choose. At issue now is whether patient taxpayers of the vast non-suicidal majority will ever receive the care which they expect and for which they have so handsomely paid. Fortunately also, the natural power of the citizen-consumer, although compromised, has not been entirely destroyed. For even under the extreme Canadian monopoly, there are avenues of redress through the political process, and the same numerical power, which is now so obviously frustrated as legitimate economic demand, 
may still be expressed as a democratic majority. As well it must be, for this is nothing less than a struggle for the soul of medicine and perhaps even for that of humanitarian society itself. More immediately, however, it is also about whether our lavishly funded gargantuan medical industry will actually respond to the wishes and interests and interests of those who are paying for it. This then is a moment of historic decision, I believe, in which we must raise our standard and stand our ground. Our first and most important task is simply to inform the patient, consumer, and doctor provider of the existential struggle now raging between competing industrial models, just as they have been laid out here. On the one hand, a life-affirming patient-centered medicine in the traditional mode. On the other, a utilitarian variant where death as treatment is normalized to reduce aggregate cost. It must be perfectly understood that like oil and water, these two visions are mutually incompatible in the clinical realm. Mm -hmm. Let us, okay, let us state the facts in plain language. The death medicine of euthanasia is nothing new. There is no mystery about the logic of veterinary herd management. But we must ask, is that the sort of medicine which we wish for ourselves? Mm -hmm. Beyond ideal arguments, therefore, of morality, ethics, equality, all service providers, jurisdictions, networks, hospitals, clinics, hospices, and individual doctors, as well as all patients, consumers, and taxpayers, must be presented with a clear and significant choice. It is of the utmost importance that we discuss these matters among ourselves and articulate a coherent vision of the essential mission of the medical industry. Patients must hear from doctors that they are committed to life-affirming care. Doctors must hear from patients that this commitment is gratefully accepted and attuned to their desires. In the best of cases, a common ground for democratic decision will thus be reached. However, even in less favorable circumstances, and even in places where no success is currently possible, there must still exist an informal understanding between like-minded doctors and patients. We must agree that we are committed to behaving as we alone conceive the right, committed to passively resisting together all political pressure to submit, committed to articulating our resistance publicly, and committed to persevering in that resistance until such time as the natural weight of numbers, economic and democratic, shall ultimately prevail. So in this short talk, I have attempted to show how the question of death by choice has been used as a stalking horse to introduce something much worse, a complete paradigm of medicine based on utilitarian euthanasia. I have described the philosophical and economic nature of this new death medicine, and I have suggested conceptual, legislative, and commercial remedies, which depend upon clearly distinguishing objective medicine from personal subjective choice. It is the consumer case for democratic majority, which I find to be the most compelling. For the anti-euthanasia patient sentiment upon which our argument depends is not of any fickle 
or minority description. It is rooted in nothing less than the human will to survive, which I contend is both constant and overwhelming. Typical patients of the non-suicidal majority absolutely require euthanasia-free institutions and professionals who are exclusively devoted to life-affirming care. It would therefore be wise in my view for those who are sincerely committed to socialized medicine that they understand the depth of crisis which this euthanasia question presently promises for our Canadian system and that they adjust their policies accordingly. For if monopoly stands in the way of majority demand, sooner or later, majority must give way, uh, monopoly must give way. Finally, if there are any who remain convinced that medical authority can be used to contain choice, I must point once again to actual Canadian experience. For in our country, the medical justification of euthanasia has multiplied the incidence of assisted death many fold. In closing then, please allow me to express my most sincere and fervent desire that individual choices and resolute use of local and provincial powers may still save us from the terrible consequences of defining death as medical care. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon. Wow. Um, again, lots of comments coming up and we'll get to some of those questions. And uh, so obviously that part there, the last part is basically, we should get back to choice. Well, we should, we should, if it's to be allowed. Yeah. Let it be allowed on the basis of choice. Yeah. But there's no reason. Uh, it, if you if you if you are informed of your right, like for instance myself, I'm going to go to see a doctor. Yeah. The doctor says, "Oh, Gordon, are you aware of the fact that you're eligible for?" Yes, I'm aware of it. Okay, yes. it's like you walk in and suddenly you're confronted with an open elevator shaft. Yeah. That's right. Why? Why? Why that? Why that? Okay. Now you have a guy. Suddenly he gets a, a cancer diagnosis. All right. Yeah. Well, you can become very depressed by that, and he's looking at operations. And he's looking at chemo and whatever. Yeah. And the doctor says, you know, you can just skip that. Now, my neighbor next door went through three years of, of uh, terminal phase cancer. She had a couple of operations. She had a couple of courses of chemo. She had wonderful moments. Yeah. She had lower moments. Yeah. She was... With her children, she was getting her head around the idea that she was going to die. You know, this is part of, I mean, I, 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 I have a dear friend, a doctor who has a presentation, which is called Don't Waste Your Death, you know? Mm. Like we talk about don't waste your life, don't waste your death. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's, it's just terrible. And they, they talk about nurses, you know, being trained now. And they believe, they're young women, they believe, young people, they believe that uh, their seniors, what they're telling them to do, it must be good, it must be okay. And there's a lot of things in nursing that are hard, so they have to get used to this too. But mm -hmm. they still say, you know, there's something really feels 
strange about having a cup of coffee with a patient and talking to them, then leaving their room and coming back and the patient is a gray stiff and they're supposed to clean the body. Wow. That's not normal. Yeah. You know, it's usually you see a person dying, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even for a nurse, they, they go home, they say, Oh, the, that patient is dying. And then when I come back on the next shift, they might not be there, you know, but you don't, you're not trading jokes with a patient and then 15 minutes later washing their body. That's not the way it's supposed to work. No, that's right. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of things that have come up and we, we basically said that it's in theory, it's not assisted suicide, but yet, you know, if, if you call a duck, a duck in certain, certain cases, really it is right. They, they just will not go there. Right. That's no. it. I mean, it's like, no. or well, three point, 3.0 it's right you know and so with the last couple of years we've all had friends who um at least i'm assuming and and maybe if if you're not one of those then you're lucky but i've had friends that have committed committed suicide for various reasons right and um and again most of it you don't really know what the end reason is but in this sort of a situation what we're basically saying is that if you were in that mental capacity that you really, you just didn't want to live anymore, you could go to a doctor, not even talk to your family and friends and just have it done. So, you know, they, they say, uh, you know, every January 25th or whatever, it's the bell, let's talk and uh, that promotion. And you're supposed to talk about, uh, you know, make sure everyone's okay, no suicide uh, thoughts and, and, and all that. But, it's, uh, you know, again, I, I had a buddy that, that, uh, that, that did that, um, in, in last part of, uh, 2022. And again, I don't know his situation and I don't know whether or not he had some, uh, maybe he was, uh, had some, uh, health problems that he didn't just didn't want anybody to know about. Um, and it, it, for me, I would have at least liked to have known. Right. And um, and I think in this sort of a situation, you don't have to tell anybody. You just go in. And um, and is that is that the humane way to go? Is that the, there, there, the there was, going out to the field? There was a case that got a lot of ink was uh, I think it was on the West Coast. I'm not sure if it was Vancouver, but uh, this fellow had a, a psychiatric history mm -hmm. and he had been basically arrested and taken to the hospital. Yeah. And uh, his family were looking for him. They found that he was in the hospital. They were getting no information from the doctor. And then basically it was, uh, they were notified that he was dead. And he was dead because they, That's you know. Right. I heard that. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So, and there, there's a lot, you know, friends of mine that are psychiatrists who take this very seriously, you know, mm -hmm. they say, you know, our whole strategy was preventing suicide. Yeah, you're right. And now there's psychiatrists who say, well, no, the, the cure here, you know, it's like Joseph Stalin. He said, no, it's, it's not the, it's not the idea. It's the person, you know, it's people yeah. say, oh, an idea is stronger than a person. Joseph Stalin said, no, 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 no. It's the person, no person, no problem, you know? So no person, no, no sickness, right? To treat the sickness at its root, get rid of the, get rid of the sick person. Yeah. It's uh, what do you, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on um, and and maybe this is part of legislation I'm not even sure but what about power of attorney if someone is uh, uh, brain dead or they're they're not going to come back uh, you know 
again, another family member was that same sort of situation a long time ago. I wasn't even part of the conversation. And the next thing I know that they, they passed away. Well, you, you, right now, yeah. in any situation like that, they can have withdrawal of care. Yeah. And today, that's another thing that came up, you know, in recent times, in the 90s. Um, food and water was never considered care, you know? Yeah. Well, now food and water is considered care. So when we talk about withdrawing care, we're talking about withdrawing food and water, which means the, the basis of life. I mean, okay, but still, okay, the guy is, there's still a natural dying process. But yeah. no, that, that, those decisions are made with substituted consent. Yeah. Okay. But this is what, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to point out, uh, which is a whole other level. People are still trying to wrap their idea about death by choice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, already seeing that the the with the consent barrier is gone very 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 soon yeah you're going to have incapable people that could be uh, cognitive deficiency they could be severe autism they could be all kinds of things yeah. and other people yeah. will decide for them and because if it's a good thing, for the one in this bed here mm -hmm. and who is competent to make a decision. And then we have this other person in, in the bed next door, same condition, but they're not capable of, of uh, consent. Yeah. If it's ethical for one, it must be ethical for the other, right? Yeah. So these are like logical dominoes. And so uh, it's going to be the evacuation of a huge number of people. Yeah. Someone, someone did mention that it's that wasn't power of attorney. I, I was trying to think of what it was. It's actually a personal directive in that sort of yeah. situation. That's yeah. true. So let's let's uh, let's go a little darker here, just because why not? Um, <laughs> my concern, and uh, I'm always looking out after number one, is uh, if they do make the change about the mental illness. Uh, I've had conversations with other people. Um, who's to say that the government? is going to come in and say that I'm uh, of not of mental health. Like the Russians. And, yeah. And, uh, and you yeah. know, it's like yeah. just, the Russians yeah. did that. They already did that. Yeah. They said, you know, because they're, they're objective. They say, okay, what we're saying is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is completely outside of my wheelhouse. Okay. But I'm talking yeah. personally now, yeah, but what the Russians, the Russians said, uh, we're telling the truth. And we've explained it very carefully to the, to Kerry. We explain it to him very carefully yeah. and he doesn't get it. Yeah. So if he doesn't get it and it's the truth and we've explained it to him carefully, that means there must be something wrong with his cognitive mechanism. So yeah. we'll put him in the loony bin. And that's what they did with yeah. all of their dissidents. They yeah. had them in mental hospitals. Okay. Yeah. So now you're saying, take it to the next level, uh, put the, poor bugger out of his misery right i mean it's it's it is you know uh, no that's not that's not impossible if you go no, it's not a, out, it's not out of the realm of possibility based upon it's it's this, certain certainly not out of the realm of speculation you know no. yeah so so for those people watching um take note of that if there's any reason why something may not agree with uh, with something or uh, an entity, whether it's government or, I think they could easily just have you offed. 
for lack of well, if the criteria is suffering, right? Yeah, yeah. What is the symptom of suffering? The symptom of suffering is you complain because you're suffering, right? Yeah. So if you're complaining, you must be suffering. Therefore, you're good to go. You know. Wow. So that's pretty terrible. No, but let's let's bring it back to Alberta yeah. prosperity. Yes. The thing is. If you think that you can split this idea of understanding, because that's what it is. You, as soon as you talk to anybody, they think it's about choice. Okay, but if you if you can say to them, okay, you could have a clinic like in in that that um, principle that I said, you know, that euthanasia is not a treatment to which patients can claim to be entitled. That's mm -hmm. what's in the. Uh, ethical guidance of the Academy of Medical Sciences in Switzerland. Okay, Switzerland is the is the capital, the world capital of assisted suicide. People go there to commit suicide. They have the most wide open criteria of eligibility of anybody on earth, yeah. but they still don't believe it's medical treatment. Okay, not essential medical treatment. It's a medical, they, whether it's a medical act or not, they argue about that, but it's definitely not essential medical treatment. So right. they don't have the problem that we have. Yeah. Okay, it's just amazing. Uh, they actually have people, old people relocating in, in, in Switzerland because they believe they can trust Swiss doctors when they can't trust Dutch doctors, you know? And, and that's the other thing. That's the terrible thing is that when you go in as a patient and you're talking to the doctor, like when, when you go to the bank, you realize that the nice lady on the other side of the desk is not really your friend, or you should realize that, right? Or when you're buying a car, it's the same thing, right? But we're used to thinking that the doctor really is our friend. Yeah. And are we now to have that doubt, you know, in the same way we're saying, well, actually we're not really playing on the same side of the game. He's playing for the house, you know? He's a dealer for the house. And, in the last couple of years, you're right. You're absolutely right. So the idea would be if if uh, if you could float this idea in 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 Albertan political landscape, the 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 most powerful ideas in a in a sovereignty perspective, in a in a local government perspective, yeah. are those that catch on a bit across party lines. You know. Mm -hmm. And so far, there's been a division on the left. Everybody's been in favor of assisted death, going back to the AIDS epidemic, because that's when it became a, a real thing, yeah. assisted suicide. And that became an article of faith. It was a, it was a gay rights issue, and they just haven't revisited that, that idea. But, and and you, you have the libertarians who believe that you should have a choice. But a libertarian, there's a difference between being a libertarian and being a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the idea of of managing the human population like that, I mean, that's not a libertarian thing. And that's not, there's a lot of mm -hmm. good, decent people on the left who are not comfortable with that kind of thing. And finally, at the very bottom of this is the fact that it matters to you personally, okay, because you want to have medical care normally. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so... I I think that this is worth discussing because it can be a a a powerful uh, local message saying no. Uh, even if we accept assisted suicide, 
we don't see why we should have to accept the Quebec interpretation. That's right. Of death as medical care. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that, uh, you know, I, I haven't even looked up what Alberta law says about this. There is no Alberta law. Yeah. That's the point. They, yeah. They've just de facto accepted the, the, you know, like Medicare in Canada, they have a principle that they want it to be harmonious and, and uniform. Yeah. yeah. But that, what does that mean? Does that mean some, some province can just declare something and after that, that's it across the board, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's, uh, and, and that's another thing about Quebec, okay, is that um, they are ready to pick these fights. First of all, uh, euthanasia was not legal. First of all, they turned assisted suicide into euthanasia because people thought that we were going to talk about assisted suicide. But no, we're talking about euthanasia. And that was a Quebec idea. But basically, they, they decided we're not satisfied with the the criminal regime as it is. And we will use our medical power. That's because they're used to using their powers, you know. Mm -hmm. And Alberta can progressively become used to using their powers. Right. And that can be even more powerful than referendums because you can lose referendums. But if you get people on side, you know, the basic, um, I've been in Quebec now for 50 years. I grew up on the prairies, but I've been in Quebec. Yeah. And the, the slogan that they had going back to the 50s, and which was the most important, was um, it translates to uh, master in our own house. Mm -hmm. And people from all political shades in Quebec, they, they, came, they, see, they said, yeah, we should really be able to decide what we're doing here. And although they lost the two referendums, it really is, uh, you know, they have their own immigration system. They have, they have, they're the only province to have ever invoked the notwithstanding clause, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, regardless of what anybody else thinks, notwithstanding, we're going to do this this way. They collect their own, their own income tax. Yeah. They, they, they got used to using the, uh, the political powers that they had and pushing the envelope on it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really something that has to be done. Uh, can be done. Yeah. While you're waiting for the referendum and so forth, and so on. That's right, and and really, you kind of hit the nail on the head too. In terms of if you leave the power to the people, in terms of a referendum, um, that may not actually be vote as the best uh, best solution, because you really have to educate people on what the uh, what the sides of the story are. Right. And that's kind of the whole thing about what we APP does is that we want to educate people, educate the viewers and anybody that, uh, that, you know, we can get the message out to and say, um, and, and in this case, you have to recognize that you have a choice. And if, if you don't understand what the choices are, you're going to make a bad decision. Well, I, I've been very impressed, actually, with with what I've seen from you guys, That's good. because it's a, it's a it's a, a it's like a common learning experience. I mean, you're working it out, but you're talking to one another, yeah. Yeah. and that's what it takes, you know. Absolutely, it does, right? And and we try and talk about the stuff that people don't like to talk about because, you know, I don't I you know I'll talk about the latest movie if you want, but that's not gonna have any bearing on my life five years from now. And so, like this, this is this is something that needs further discussion, and essentially, we need to take this up to uh, 
to the premier and the powers to be in the government. It's it's interesting that Danielle Smith, you know, she is on the record as being against euthanasia for uh, medical illness, for mental illness. Mental illness, yeah. That's a recent thing. And uh, that's interesting. Actually, Quebec, too, for, you know, you can't. You can never tell how people are going to come down on this thing, yeah. but the the thing is, you're, there's they're, they're breaking ranks, provinces are breaking ranks, and I think that that's important because that's competition. You know, the, these politicians they like to have consensus. They like to have everybody agrees. Oh, everybody knows, but that's not how we advance in life. We advance in life through a. a an adversarial position, trying out different ideas and seeing which ones work better, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. which ones make people happier. Yeah. So I'm just scrolling back through the comments here, looking for some questions. And if you do have questions or maybe you put them in uh, just a, a normal format of, hey, question mark, if you can go back and just put them uh, as three question marks and then the question, that way it flags it. It's easier for me to scroll back and take a look. Um. We've covered a lot of stuff that people had asked already, which was great. Um, so here was, yeah, great question. There's actually two of them with, we're very close. So if somebody is euthanized, what does the death certificate say? And oh. how does that work for life insurance? That's a, that's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. First of all, there is no effect on life insurance, which is a weird thing because you're yeah. not allowed to, to commit suicide. Yeah. That's this right. is in suicide. That's right. So right away, everybody's premiums just went up because they now have this risk that they have to cover that they didn't have to cover before. That's All right. True. But I don't know what effect that will have. But the other one, what 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 was it? What they, they said on yeah, the death like, certificate. Yeah, no, they, they lie on the death certificate. They just say whatever the issue was, maybe prior. They yeah, had, yeah. Uh, they say that they answer. say that. Yeah, if you if it's if you if they think you're going to die from cancer, they'll write it in as cancer. Wow. wow. So you wow. you don't. But and we have really quite poor reporting, better reporting in Quebec than elsewhere, yeah. and they're all supposed to say there is there are reporting uh, uh, conditions, but it, it's hard to get a real handle on how many. Uh, of these things there are and for what reasons and data is very important yeah but uh, that's that there you go there's they're underreported that's that's all we can say um another question could organs be taken from those oh and use that's, donations that's a whole new thing yeah yeah that's a whole new thing it's yes the answer is yes i would imagine the, Depending, the is, depending on, on uh, likewise, I mean, if, if again, I'm not a, I, I don't even know the term for someone, euthanologist. Uh, I don't know how, uh, if, if you get poison or whatever, and what that actually does to the organs. Oh, they, uh, they, 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 they have got it down to a science. science. Basically, science it's basically, if, when they get somebody who's going in for MAID and they think that they've got good organs, they are going to harvest those organs yeah. under the best circumstances. Yeah. So no, this is this is this is the real thing. Uh, do you know if the doctors get training for a protocol on how to handle or advise as well as how to carry out the treatment? And I guess in, in terms of even how how would you go through a training program to yeah. 
like the way this has been the way this has been done so far has been like with a mentoring system where different doctors who are gung-ho on it are make themselves available to do training sessions with other doctors the way this works okay it is very strange okay because amongst doctors you have doctors you know they they live in a glass house traditionally because two or 300 years ago, they had no idea what they were doing. So whatever one of them was doing, the other ones would say, Dr. So-and-so has a perfect right to do that because, you know, all right. So they protect each other. But they so they, they, they tend to say, well, all right, if he wants to do it, then um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt professionally. He believes it's a good thing to do. Uh, I don't believe that or I wouldn't do that. But so you have a majority and they say, oh, a majority of doctors are in favor. No, a majority of doctors say that they're willing to allow other doctors to 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 uh, practice as they wish. And then when you get down to the number that say that they would be willing to do it, you get down to about 30 percent. And here you're talking about people are willing to do it within some kind of a thought experiment. You know, they say, if the person had this, if this was going on, if, yes, yes, I can imagine a limit case in which I would do it. But then when you get down to the number of people who actually will do it, you get down to about 10%. And of those, normally they will do one or two and never do another one. Mm -hmm. They just quietly drop it because it's a very hard thing for a normal human being to do. So actually you get down to a very tiny percentage of the doctors who are doing a huge volume. And um, you can actually see it in different little regions in a province. You'll see one particular uh, hospital or, or one particular community driving the numbers up. That's because they're going to have a guy in there who is, like a good salesman, you know, like, you know. Um, scrolling back through, there's actually been several viewers who have been offered made. That's amazing. Nobody should be offered made. No. I mean, think of it. Think of it. You should. I mean, okay. I talk about alcoholics, right? Because I, I, I you know, in my life, I've, I've had a certain, you know, like after my accident and everything like that, I, 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 I I wasn't very disciplined. Well, there's all these different levels, moral levels. If a, if a person wants to take a drink, you say, okay, we can allow, are we going to stop him from taking that drink that we know he shouldn't have? Yeah. Well, first level is you can say, okay, we'll allow him to do it. But then there's a completely other moral level in which he says, pour me a drink, and you do pour him a drink. No, you say, no, I'm not going to pour you a drink. If you want to get a drink, go and buy it yourself. I know that you're, I know what kind of a, a miserable bastard you are when you're drinking, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to pour you a drink. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's another limit. There's another level, and that's that you, you pour a drink for an alcoholic. No, you know, he didn't even ask you for it. You just put the glass on the table and pour out a drink. No, that is a very, that is an, an incredibly, weak moral position. I mean, that's really reprobate. And that's what they're doing. You walk in and they say, would you like to have, mm-hmm. especially if you're in any kind of uh, position of uh, dejection or uh, 
you know, you've just, like I said, you've just had your cancer, uh, yeah. your, your cancer, or, or you're like me, you just had your back broken or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, someone uh, someone said that it's mostly nurses that are offering me. Uh, that, so. it, but it, it's the team. It's yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's the team, it, it, and it it's an esprit de corps. You know, it, it's the spirit of the team, and that's what I'm saying. If you want, if you want to have the maximize your chances of a good recovery, of a good readaptation, of a good death, you want to have a team who is committed. They don't even think about letting you go, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, if you refuse care, okay, they say, all right, he refused care. He refused care. Not only did he refuse care, but he, he phoned up the local suicide assistance line. All right, fine, okay. But it's not going to be them, right? And so the idea is what kind of doctors do we want? And uh, communicating that. The way it is now, you can't have a hospital without MAID. So basically, they're making it impossible to develop a team. If I wanted to go out, or say, if you wanted to start right now a, uh, a palliative care facility, for instance, there's many places where you couldn't do it unless you were using MAID. And the only way you would be able to get out of it in most places is through a religious exemption. Okay, but what if you don't have a religious exemption? What about if you just don't think that that's a good idea? What if you want to establish a team? And then they have, you know, multiple laws in the United States. Every state brings up their own laws, their own project of laws. And one thing that's in those projects of laws a lot now is a private hospital is allowed to say they won't have assisted suicide, but they cannot discipline a member doctor or a member nurse for providing assisted suicide outside of the institution. And they can't discipline them for providing information inside the institution. So basically what they're saying is you cannot have a, a uh, ivory snow pure facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like my last slide, you can't have that. You're not allowed to have that. No. It's like, it's as though saying you couldn't have a vegetarian restaurant. Yeah. You know, you can't have a smoke-free hotel room. You're not allowed to. Is it is it up to the College of Physicians and Surgeons to uh to discipline that? Like if somebody somebody said that I wanted to to uh you you can uh have your license in jeopardy for refusing to do things that you're supposed to do. Wow. Yeah. You know? And this was the thing, like they said, okay. And and also the reasons, like right away they said it was like for for religious and deeply held moral convictions, okay? But this, like I said, throughout the world, if you go back to that, I got that slide about different medical associations around the world, what they say uh, about yeah. this. Yeah. The World Medical Association is absolutely against. The American Medical Association is against. Uh, and yet here, if you don't, if you're not willing to do it, you have to hook the patient up with someone who will. And we have a lot of people who have sincere convictions and they say, no, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be part of it. 
And these doctors are actually leaving Canada at a time when we need doctors. Yeah, you're right. And they are, of course, taken up with open arms in places like in 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 the more conservative states down south where where it's not an issue and also in any number of countries i mean the the countries that have i mean first of all there is no country like canada we are i was just going to ask if you knew of any other countries that are as well, I hate, to, the, I hate to say forward thinking because I'm almost thinking it's backwards. But well, it's it's Chinese thinking. It, yeah. But in, in any case, the the first of all, you have a, a number of places that have assisted suicide, yeah. but then the places that actually have euthanasia are very few. You're talking about Holland, Belgium, yeah. I believe Colombia and Canada. Uh, maybe there might be some that I that I'm forgetting, but there's a very few, and. In Holland and in Belgium, they never actually came out and said it's medical care. They've been sneaking up on it, yeah. but they never, they never, they never dared come out and say it. it. It was this really, really radical. I mean, you have to give it to them that they, that they, the, 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 the activists, like within the medical establishment, there are these activists, and it's like a surfer riding a wave. Okay. There aren't that many of them, but they're riding the wave Mm -hmm. and they went for the, they they went right for the, for the golden prize. They said, you know, we're not going to fool around with this. It's like a game of leapfrog. We're going to go out into completely stake out completely new ground. And that's what they did. And there's no reason why we should collectively accept that as a done deal. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, there's there's still lots lots of discussion that we could we could make, and the, and everyone has their own own opinions, and everyone has examples that they could give. Um, I think we'll finish off tonight. We're we're shy of two hours, and that was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Gordon, for for your your knowledge and your experience and 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 the insight into everything that. Uh, everything that has to do with euthanasia. I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but you know, the, the thing about having the Alberta prosperity project make these uh, webinars is to educate and, uh, and to hopefully make a change in policy. And, and hopefully this sort of discussion will, will happen. And whether or not it's uh, whether it happens within uh, uh, sovereignty within Canada or as an independent, uh, uh, outside of Canada, we we have the power to have these conversations and to create policy and to create laws and and make it make Alberta the the envy of the world is really what well, we want. And 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 even yeah. you know even you can have your thunder stolen from you too, which sometimes which yeah. you know it hurts, but yeah. at the same time you're you you know you can have a a policy which is taken up by a party in power and then they suddenly realize that it's a winning proposition you know and that but it pushes your agenda at the same time but i mean it it, this is something which i think can be brought forward what you know it can be talked about in the newspapers and so forth and so on but i just want to say that i personally and the organization that i represent and a lot of other individuals that i know 
would be willing to collaborate with you in uh, in in hashing out uh, political proposals and 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 uh, uh, publishing articles and things like that. If you can, you know, open the doors to us, and and we will do it, and we'll talk about it. We'll do a we'll do a discussion. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. And of course, for everyone for staying online and watching and listening, uh, thank you very much. It's a long two hours, a lot of stuff to uh, to absorb. And I uh, hope you found that entertaining and uh, knowledgeable. And by all means, please share. Share and get the message out, right? Uh, that's kind of what we want to do. Um, we do these uh, APP webinars every Wednesday. And uh, we have new speakers and new information. And next week, I have to go back to my notes here. Next week, we have Michelle Sterling speaking on uh, lockdowns, the door opener for the fourth industrial revolution and 15-minute cities, which is yet another topic that people have been going crazy about. Um, and I'm sure it's probably been like that in Montreal as well. I wouldn't spend 15 minutes there. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, and, and likewise, I'd like to uh, acknowledge our volunteers here uh, at APP, and they really are the uh, greatest commodity that we have uh, is uh, volunteers. If uh, you'd like to sign up to be a volunteer, please do. We, uh, we use them uh, or can, can use them at, uh, at any events that we have to get people to sign up and, uh, and again, spread the message. And, um, and you know, being a volunteer can be anything. You could be out there setting up chairs. You could actually help organize chapter events. You could uh, help, uh, you could run these webinars. You could start your own website. You could do whatever you needed to do. But the point is, is that we need to get the word out on what APP is trying to do and, uh, and again, make the, the changes. So uh, please go to albertaprosperityproject.com uh, for the website and uh, you can take a look there. And with that, I'm going to wrap up and I uh, wish everyone a fabulous rest of your evening. Of course, for you, Gordon, I'm sure being in Montreal, you're just going to go right to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we hope to see everybody at an event or online again very soon. So thank you once again, Gordon. Thank you. And everyone, have a good night. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you. Mm -hmm.